0: We've been to all four corners of Britain in our quest to interview the great and good of entertainment. Comics, actors, writers, politicians, singers, dancers and choreographers. It doesn't matter who they are. They've all given me their own take on the world they live in and have, in their own way, helped to define what makes Britain great. So join me and my assistants as we get another insight into the marvellous and enigmatic world of showbiz here on Beyond the Title.
1: Iconic singer-songwriter Steve Harley swapped a career in journalism for music as he gradually earned a reputation in the London folk clubs in 1971 and 72. He later joined folk band Odin as a rhythm guitarist and co-singer, which was where he met his first Cockney rebel violinist, John Crocker. However, the folk scene proved a little tame for Mr. Harley, and as he was constantly writing songs, formed Cockney Rebel as a vehicle for his own work. The 1975 single, Come Up and See Me, Make Me Smile, reached number one in the UK chart and has since been covered over 100 times. I caught up with the music icon who's done it all to talk Rebels, Cockneys, and his recollections on an unparalleled career in music. Ladies and gentlemen, the evergreen Steve Harley. Okay, so we'll get onto the highlights of your career in a moment, but I was surprised to learn that you were originally destined for a career in accountancy. Is there a correlation between accountancy and music? (laughs) You have
2: to pay one, that's for sure. (laughs) No, I was never, that was not, that's not quite right. Um, When I left school, I know what you're referring to, Josh, here. It's when I left school, I got a job... uh, at the Daily Express newspaper on Fleet Street. And uh, that was only because my destiny was to be a journalist. Um, Since I was 12 years old, I was telling the school I would be a reporter, newspaper reporter. Um, And that's a tough one to get into even in 1968, when I started to try. It was always difficult. So I got a job at the Express newspaper just so that I could be around journalism. And I was on the accounts floor. It's true. I wasn't training to be an accountant, but I was on the accounts floor. Right. And you're you're talking to someone here who was so poor at mathematics that I didn't even sit the GCE, my O level. They wouldn't let me sit at my school. I was so useless at maths. So I was never going to be an accountant. (laughs) But from, I, I used to... Do a day's work on the accounts floor, helping with bookkeeping and stuff. And then at five o'clock, I didn't go home to my mum and dad's flat for dinner. I'd go down one floor down to the news floor, which was all open plan. And I would watch the reporters on their big old typewriters, you know, big old Remington typewriters, bang, 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 banging out the news stories for tomorrow's paper. It always fascinated me. That, so that's the connection.
1: Uh, and then I did
2: get a job as I, I I got taken on as a trainee reporter. Did that for four years. Okay. Mm
1: Just said that was the era when Fleet Street was sort of right at the right at the centre of all of the big stories. Do you remember any iconic stories breaking while you were there?
2: I I was... I was only there for that nine months, you see. Then I got a job as a trainee reporter, um, indentured, apprentice, you know. And I did that for four years. I was involved in some good stories myself as a reporter. My last year, before I became a full professional musician, was with the uh, East London Advertiser. And uh, that's uh, in Mile End, Whitechapel. And that's, they were situated, we were right opposite the blind beggar. Which is a famous pub in Whitechapel where murders took place on behalf of the Cray twins. So I I was in in the thick of it for the last year of my career. Well, I was I was I was seventeen when man walked on the moon. Mm. You know, yeah. well, I remember that story well
1: enough.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was working there then.
1: So generating quite a following in the London folk scene, sort of early nineteen seventies. How did that socioeconomic structure of the time influence the issues that you were talking about in your songs
2: and what issues in particular I didn't really um, my, my, those those original songs were to be honest they were quite um, based they were based mostly based on people that I knew I was mixing with um, but they're, they're all I didn't really write about issues. I, I wrote about people um, in a bizarre sort of way. A, a, a reporter said to me just recently, I was doing an interview with him, and he said your early material was very strange. <laughs> yep, it actually was. And he said couldn't work out what those songs were all about. And I said, well, maybe maybe they're, they're not about something. Uh, then he said, Sebastian, you know Sebastian, Josh? The song, Sebastian? Yeah? Yeah. yeah. He said to me, you know, I mean, that's, that's a big piece. And he said, what's that about? And I, I just said, well, it's about seven minutes. And I couldn't think of, I mean, it sounds clib, but, yeah. <laughs> but it's, you know, I, I, you can't explain what songs are about to people. I think that you know, we all have to make our own minds so. up
1: yeah and then obviously sort of followed on and still sort of surrounded by some of the veterans of sort of that 1960s folk scene including someone like you know for example Julie Felix what how were people like yourself able to sort of learn from performing with you know conviction from people like herself
2: all I learned in the folk club. So i'm not a focusing I'm, I'm from london you know i'm a i'm a deptford boy we don't have folk music you know. there's no folk music in london yeah. everywhere in the country all, all over great britain and I, i've been to every little pocket of the british islands uh, in 50 years of traveling in the music business and they all have their indigenous music you know it could be in yorkshire with the clogs Oxfordshire with the the tambourine and the Morris dancing. Every pocket of Britain has its own indigenous uh, folk music. London doesn't. London's been cosmopolitan for millennia. I think the sailors would come and go from Deptford. Yeah, the sailors would come and go from Deptford and Greenwich, uh, you you know, centuries ago, and take their sea shanties with them. I never heard a sea shanty in Deptford when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s. Mm. Um, so, so I only went into the folk clubs to, to, to learn how to, to sing to people, you know, mm. just to fine tune mm. my songs, to hone the songs, and to learn a bit of stage uh, craft. Mm. And, and there were very clever people. Uh, Martin Carthy, Richard Thompson, Martin, John Martin, I was around. I, I played on the same in the same club as them. They were they were playing a show, and I would only just get up and floor spot. They call it open mic now. It's where you turn up with your guitar case and someone spots you at the host of the evening says, "Do you want to come up and do?" And I would get up and do twenty minutes, you know, for no money. It's just free. I never played in a folk club for money.
1: Mm. So joining the folk band Odin, you met the future Cockney Rebel violinist John John Crocker. What were your first impressions of him?
2: He's a really good player, John. Yeah, and very funny. We all liked each other a lot. The first Cockney Rebel, we all liked each other a lot. We laughed a lot. We were very young, and uh, we laughed all the time, making the human menagerie, which is a very serious record. <laughs> You know, with the orchestra and choir, it's a big record. It cost the EMI a lot of money for a band's a debut mm. album. But we were very funny. We loved each other uh, to be with each other. We loved it. And uh, after two albums, as you know, they they walked out on me. Three of them, including John Crocker. I've never really, I don't really know why they, they, mm. they walked away. Three of them. Mm.
1: But the band on? How did you settle on the name Cockney Rebel? How did I? How did you settle Sorry? on the name Cockney Rebel?
2: How did I? I'm not quite hearing you, my friends.
1: Sorry, how did you settle on the name Cockney Rebel?
2: Oh, the, oh, the name? Well, i tell you what. Um, when I was about 21, I was back at my mum and dad's place in London and... Uh, my mother my mother collected stuff and she got out some of my young my poetry that I was writing at school and she and amongst it was a long piece it was three pages three pages long sort of uh, autobiographical piece called the Cockney rebel um, it was a useless poem to be honest it wasn't a very good poem but I liked the marquee, the banner, the title, I liked it a lot. Cockney Rebel. I like that. So I, that's where it came from. But I, why I called myself that, I've no idea, because as a journalist pointed out a few years ago, he said Steve Harley is neither a Cockney nor a rebel. And, he, <laughs> and he's probably dead right, you know. But uh, why spoil a good story for a few facts? you
1: know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, In the early 70s, there were just a handful of record companies that were sort of the holy grail of music. How significant was signing to EMI in 72? And did it ever feel like you were in a situation where you would have to compromise your creativity for commercialism?
2: No, EMI were brilliant. Um, I signed on a second contract for a further three years. I was with them for six years. Um, They were brilliant with me. Um, I had a lot of pretty mad ideas. Um, we were quite unique in some ways, and uh, they let me get on with them. They encouraged me uh, in my mad madness and my crazy ideas. They encouraged me. Uh, they never compromised me at all, to be honest. Uh, it was run by good men who actually liked music, musicians. It's, it's not the way today. Uh, they're run by accountants. But back then, you, you had met young men who really respected the, the, the writer, the player. They, it was quite a different world. So no, I had a great time at the M.I. I was quite sorry when it ended, and it, but it did end. Things do, you know.
1: Mm. 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 Okay. Yeah, oh, sorry, I didn't catch that myself. <sighs> was George Martin still there?
2: Uh, no, when I signed in '72, George Martin had already gone off. Um, uh, he'd he started Air, Air Studios where we made the first album actually. What? He was uh. The Beatles weren't recording anymore. I don't know. What, he, he was
1: semi-retired by then, I think. In 75, Cockney Rebel joined an elite club where you reached number one with Come Up and See Me. Why do you think that song struck a chord and became such an iconic song?
2: you. <laughs> I, I, I hear so much about it. Make me smile. I hear so much about it. Um, iconic. I I, it's all just serendipity isn't it those guys walked out on me the three walked out on Cockney Rebel after two albums and I wrote a song about that it's called Make Me Smile so you know out out of adversity I got my pension um (sighs) And I, that's all I can tell you. It's just a song. We recorded it. We, we knew at the time we had something pretty interesting. EMI loved it and said, number one, got it there. And yeah, it's, uh, it owes me nothing. Mm. There's no magic formula. It all just came together brilliantly for one song. I've had other hits, but I know that I realize that's what I'm known for. I'm
1: not ashamed of that No and it leads quite nicely on to the next question Josh went to see Lou Reed um, some years ago and the audience became a little bit um, angry when he refused to sing Perfect Day, could you imagine a time where you wouldn't perform your big song?
2: No Lou Reed was quite a curmudgeon a difficult man I'm not like that uh and Made Me Smile especially, is it's, it's unique. It's kind of like you start the intro on stage, as we do every time we play, at the end of the show, and it, you can see the whole place come alive. It, I mean, hopefully it's been a, come alive for two and a quarter hours before that, but it just jumps to its feet, you know? The place mm. rocks. It's, it's, it has got that about it. And they all sing it. Why would I not perform it? It's, uh, I something. It's just unthinkable. Um, It's Uh, part of my pleasure, as you know, to see the whole place standing and singing and dancing. You walk off to that. It's a great feeling. Yeah, definitely. (laughs)
1: Have you got any favourite covers from someone else performing it? Yeah. um,
2: Yeah, there's been, I understand, about 130-plus covers of Made Me Mm. Smile. a A lot of them that I've heard are just, they really replicate the original, and I don't see the point of that. But the clever ones Duran Duran uh, made a really interesting interpretation it was on the B side of the reflex a big hit single mm-hmm. that was interesting Erasure you know Andy uh, Andy what's his name Erasure they did a really brilliant disco version of it really brilliant and uh, my favourite was the wedding present, the wedding present, weddows. widows. It's kind of punky, punk-rocky, and uh, they understand, just seem to get the message right, you know? Because mm. it's, a, it's a finger poke, you know? It's basically saying, bye-bye, guys, you know, one day you'll come back, and I'll be, make, you'll make me smile. You know, basically, it's kind of a bit arrogant. Yeah, And they got it, the wedding present, you know? Go up and see me, you know, really, really aggressive. I
0: yeah. enjoyed that.
2: Cool. My favorite, my favorite, my favorite covers are the ones that that sell the most. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding, just kidding,
1: just kidding. Think, uh, yeah. No, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah it makes sense. that <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> makes sense. Um, Josh once talked about um, the Phantom of the Opera, 1992. Was it? You teamed up with Sarah Brightman. How does it? 86. 86. How did it feel to be associated with such a legendary production?
2: Oh, um, it came and went very briefly, a, brief, a brief, very brief part of my life, a career. Um, yeah, I enjoyed it. I'm Through the 80s at that point, I wasn't doing much. You know, I had two children. Uh, I always, and I'd had a completely hedonistic 70s you know 70s was the mayhem you know you hear the myths of what they're not even myths you hear the, the, the sex and drugs and rock and roll and it really truly was like that
0: yeah. it was
2: mad, and uh, it was a wonderful wonderful experience <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> ah. it was cracking yeah so it, was it was
1: great to chill crackin'. out
2: yeah, in the 80s, actually, I chill out. I had kids and I wanted to be a bit more respectable.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, and, and Andrew Lloyd Webber came along in 86 and said, he came to me and said, would you sing with Sarah Brightman, this duet? He wanted a rock singer's voice, not one of the uh, West End production voices that he, he's used to. Yeah. And then you thought I fitted the bill. But I guess I did. It was a big hit. Uh, I enjoyed the... I, 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 I enjoyed it uh, for a while. We made a, a movie with Ken Russell, which was like real movie making. So I, I took a few things from it. Good experiences, you know. But it came and it went. Good. We <laughs>
1: Just to go back to the seventies, can you remember the craziest night out you had? <laughs> It was it was just constant. Uh, yeah, not one night out, I suppose. <laughs> I <don't, laughs> you, you, you,
2: you, it's hard to imagine playing a concert and then going to a nightclub in the city we're in and, and drinking brand, brandy, smoking, you know, and then singing again the next day. It, I don't know how we did it, how I did it. It's being being young and. Uh, you know the constitution you got through it with the strength of constitution but as I got older the singing is everything you know the love of my life after family would would be live performance Yeah, which is why I do so much of it Uh, it's a great life but every time I walk on stage and we've played 45 shows already this year and every time I'm in the wings about to walk on, in my heart, I've got to believe that I've got to perform as though this is the last show I'll ever do. I have to give that audience everything. And uh, to do that night after night, you know, I did six in a row a couple of weeks ago two and a quarter, two hours, 20 every night. And it, you have to stay fit. You have to stay fit and healthy. So my voice is in my instrument. Mm. So yeah, so a lot of sleep. I'd still drink. I drink white, white wine after a concert. A few glasses of Chardonnay in my hotel room. But I'll be alone and I'll sleep. Yeah, nothing crazy. Yeah, no craziness because the jobs <laughs> the job's important. You owe it to people. People pay. You know, a ticket. Yeah. So. £30 to £100, you know, it's a lot of money. and They deserve... You've got to go out there and respect, show respect. So I have mm. to be strong and healthy. So no partying anymore.
1: No. So what's still the thrill of performing for you? What, 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 pardon? What's still the thrill of performing for you?
2: There's a little bit... Even today, even though I've been doing it for 50 years there is a, still a, a slight rush of adrenaline. You're in the wings and you, you just know amongst your, your old pals and 10 minutes before I'm on stage, I'll be doing the Telegraph crossword. I'm very relaxed. I love what, what I do. I love it. But yeah, when, when it's not just the audience reaction, it's the players. We're touring a lot as a four-piece acoustic band. And these guys are virtuoso players. Two of them are from the Royal Academy of Music, and one is just a gifted, gifted, phenomenally gifted acoustic guitar player playing in so many different tunings. I can't even tell you. And I give them quite a lot of space to improvise, which I love, and my audience is used to. My audience loves it. So it's never the same. Twice my show is never. I've seen some big shows in the last few years myself. I've been in the audience to see international huge names uh, to play to four and five thousand people. and their show is the same every night. The, the things he says between the songs is the same every damn night. The, the mm-hmm. whole movements are the same every night. It's rehearsed to you know there's three of them. I'm not naming names. and that's all perfectly fine. For them and i only see it once but i know i know because i know people who work but with me it's never the same twice i changed the set list in the dressing room i mean they've got 50 songs rehearsed and we play 22 so i can interchange quite a lot of those they are interchangeable yeah. and they're such great players that the improvised the improvised musicianship is what excites me when we come off And I look at three guys and say, Christ, we're good. I mean, that's a weird thing to say, isn't it? Mm. It's not arrogant. It's not cocky. It's looking them in the eye and saying, Christ, we're good. I'm part of it. Okay, Mm -hmm. I I lead it.
0: With the guitar
2: and my songs, I can't can't play like them. I'm not a virtuoso player. But I lead that band. And to to know it was really, really special, and it is most nights... (laughs) But sometimes the double bass player, Ollie Haywood, uh, Ollie will play a solo at one point for about two minutes. And some nights it's just phenomenal. It's jazz. And he takes it into places where the rest of us are looking, thinking, crikey, where's the one? Where's the one? Where's the beat? Where is it? And I'm going, where's that one? The <laughs> beginning of the, uh, the sequence, yeah? Because he loses us. And it's very exciting. Yeah, you're, by the seat, you're flying by the seat of your pants, but it's very exciting.
1: Yeah, and obviously you're very proud. But looking back at your career, what is your proudest achievement? Oh well,
2: sitting here, I, that would be survival. You know, survival. Having an audience is everything. Because uh, I've just explained what it means to me. It's not just playing on stage; it's the travelling. The 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 adventures that we go through, things we see on the road—it's just really interesting. I'm a culture vulture. I don't sit around in hotel rooms and coffee shops. I'm out and about. I see the city, the town, the museum, the gallery, the river. Yeah, I, I see and I, I I record I record things and write diaries about it. So it's a very it's a, it's a privileged life. When I I can look out into an audience and I can see 300, 500, 2,000, whatever I'm playing to, and, you know, I know that amongst, let's say, forgive me, but it's the men, let's say the men, rather than women, mostly, to to generalise, amongst the men in that room, 60% of them, maybe more, wanted at one point in their life to do what I'm doing. They all played air guitar. They, they had a guitar. They played a bass. They had, had a piano lessons. And they all, when they were 13, yeah. 15, 18, were dreaming about being a pop star or having a life in the music business as a rock musician. Well, we are that. And I look at them and think, That's, don't ever take that for granted. I'm not complacent about this at all. That's looking out and saying, how lucky am I? Mm. They all want to be where I am, and I'm here. and That's that's self-respect. That's a mutual respect, a mutual respect. I know they know it, and uh, it's a nice feeling. There's a sense out there these days, guys, I can tell you. um, I don't know if you've been going to concerts at all since the door opened again. What I'm seeing amongst an audience is not just... uh, for me, there's always been a, a, an easy rapport. I like people, I, I, like, I like people, I like the job. There's a different feeling now. It's kind of more like communion. I don't mean necessarily in a religious way, but there's a communion, a sense of sharing. We're all glad to be there at last, again, you know, at last. Yeah. And you feel it. Yeah, it's a good feeling and I hope it lasts.
1: Yeah, great. So, lastly, what's next for Steve Harley? <laughs> it's going to be—it's
2: just constantly playing. I, we, 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 we um, my office sent to the musicians and my my guitar tech who comes everywhere. Sent to them just a few days ago, a list of over thirty shows that are now confirmed they're not on sale yet they're not online and on sale but we know and they're for for next spring march april may june 30 plus shows are already and they're coming in every day so that's what's next it's what's what you know waiting for the next call from Mm. an agent or a promoter saying will steve do this and you're on the road can you come here you know negotiate uh, other than that it's just I've got three absolutely fantastic young grandchildren and uh, so I'm just getting on with life really staying healthy that's what's next getting the next booster
1: <laughs> getting my fourth jab yeah. that's next
0: <laughs>
1: okay great well, that's, that's all the questions we've got. So thanks very much for your time. It was brilliant.
2: No, oh, it's a pleasure. Yeah, and no, I, I enjoyed it when Josh wrote to uh, my office. I, I, it fascinated me. Yeah, and I, uh, yeah. All strength yeah. to you, Josh.
0: Thanks all strength much. to you, mate. Thank you to our guest for being the subject of another Beyond the Title interview. If you liked this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy? Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates on forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. Thanks again and hopefully see you next time.